let's take a couple seconds just to get it recording. Hello, my name is Matthew Dickin, and I'm here with Andy Torres. And we'll be having a conversation with Renee Imperato for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. Today is April 29th, 2017, and we're recording at SAGE in Midtown Manhattan. Could you tell us your name and, if you'd like, your age? My name is Renee Imperato. I'm 68 years old. And what are your gender pronouns? My gender pronouns are... She, her, and I always say they, them, they're simply because they're not male. So I can use them as well. But we prefer she, her. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> definitely. How would you describe your gender? I am a trans woman. I never, even, even when I knew nothing of us, I could never, ever, like, be like a man. I mean, I was probably first, like, sort of gender nonconforming, even though I didn't even know what that was, or there wasn't even the word for it. Um, I couldn't do... Oh, even when I actually even thought I was male, I detested male bonding. Mm. And... If ever I was around a group of men and the bonding started, mm-hmm. Renee evacuated the area. Because to me, the least harmful thing that you can say about male bonding is it's boring. Mm. Boring and boring. So, sorry, can you... Um elaborate on that a little more about male bonding and you say the least harmful thing yeah what i mean well what i mean to say is it's boring to me okay it's you know the same i mean you know i i even when i even used to challenge them i used to tell these grown adult men what are you 16 what are you you talking about and then finally i just got tired of doing that Mm. and reflecting on Pre that is, you know, like the term I use, um, oppressed, Mm. really. And that um, I just, you don't understand. my, My inner self inside me refused to allow me to even, like, go along with it. I, I, it's like impossible for me to even make believe or say something. You know, I, I, it, it's not in my makeup. It's not there. You know why? Because I'm not a man. Mm. Number one. And besides from other things. Mm. So yes, she, her. <laughs> and I happen to know you were born in New York. Actually, Can you more specifically, where? No, am I wrong? No, you're absolutely correct. In fact, 17 blocks north of here. Wow. <laughs> 44th Street. 
Uh, my mother had a wig and uh, my mother made wigs and toupees for the theater, and she had a store uh, on Forty Fourth Street, between Fifth Avenue and Broadway, and we even played stickball. You know, the manhole cover in front of the Belasco Theater was home plate. Hmm. How has it changed over the years? What'd you say? How has it changed over the years? Oh, it's become very. New York has lost its edge. It's it's. I, I hate to say it. It's not as interesting uh, as it was even even fifteen twenty years ago. Mm. Which in the depth of history is nothing. Fifteen years, um, and the rapidity of the change, and and the worst thing about New York is the diminishing diversity. Mm. I, don't, I don't just mean LGBTQ, I mean people of color, people white, you know what I mean? Um, I think, and that to me is, uh, it's like ethnic cleansing. Mm. It's like ethnic cleansing, so that's really um, how it's changed, and, and also uh, actually, I know some people even used to say, you're the only person I know is from Times Square. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but back in the day, um, when I was young, there were so many SRO hotels, single room occupancies. Probably, actually, Times Square was probably, in some ways, in some ways, uh, the most integrated neighborhood because you had like workers and workers of color mm. who worked in hotels, but they still lived in the area. Mm. They still lived in those single-room occupancy hotels like, you know, oh, uh, the King Edward or the, the Hotel 123 or the Iroquois. or I could just rattle off names, Century. And um, I kind of... Glad about the, the youth that, that I did have, um, not the fights, but you know, you know, because um, oppression for me began when I was wearing shorts. Mm. You'd get beaten up when I was a kid if you wore shorts. Not in Times Square, but in my mother's apartment in Brooklyn. Mm. It's okay. What was Times Square like when you were growing up? It was what people called Damon Runyon's Broadway. Hmm. The Broadway of the uh, illustrator Reginald Marsh, if you might be familiar with. Um, what were there the Madison Square there? Garden was at 50th and 8th. Uh, my father used to take me to prize fights, hmm. you know, boxing matches. Um, when I say my father, uh, you know, I mean my mother had a lot of, I had more than one father in some ways. Well, they were uncles. My mother was, uh, established her own business in 1936, which for a woman to have their own business in that period of time was revolutionary practically. And, and, uh, she was the companion of many colorful characters, <laughs> such as Slim Boy Smitty, you know, Ruby Bill, all mm. these people who had kind of like these, 
kind of street names, mm. you know, you know, Jay Jimmy. And mm. I can still picture them now, you know, with their Borsellinos and, and uh, the Bookies and the Taylors and, and all the really rich characters that, uh, that abounded um, in, in the city. And, and most of my family was either from Hell's Kitchen or, from, or actually from Greenwich Village, the West Village. Uh, which back in time, there was many uh, working class people still lived in the village. Um, many of them Italian American, which mm. which is what I am. Mm. So your mom had a lot of uh, companion characters. What what were your mom and your or how was what was your mom like? My mother, for her generation was well in some ways carried the chains of the patriarchy um, my my biological father um, just to show how much biology doesn't mean shit uh, was actually a fascist um, and uh, he actually from what my stepfather told me, my real father is my stepfather, would go into Jewish stores during World War II and do like Sig Heil, beat my mother. My mother did all the work. Uh, and um, even when I disowned, I, I don't even like using the name, but just to refer that technically, my, still my real legal name is Dorsey. Even that's a phony name. Imperado is actually the most accurate name I have. That's my mother's maiden name. Mm. Mm. Dorsey was the name of the man who inseminated my mother, mm. I think. Um, perhaps, maybe. And uh, he, was, uh, he was actually not a Dorsey. He, was, he played the cornet. Mm. He was a musician. And so what he did was he went to court in 1932 to change his name to Dorsey because he tried to play all the people that he was the second cousin of Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey who were big band leaders back then, hmm. right? So it was, if you think about it, it was nothing real about the name. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't, it can't be. Right. I just, I'm disowning that person. And even though my mother kept that name, I've decided to give it new life mm. and um, and so that's why uh, I, uh, I I use the name and um, and uh, you know my mother dumped him some before I actually was even born mm. and um, he was a gambler and uh, had a lot of heart attacks, and he actually died at a rail a racetrack in in uh, Michigan. Uh, he was cheering some horse, and wow. boom, and that was exactly one month after JFK was assassinated. Mm. I was twelve, thirteen, maybe fourteen. I was fourteen. Yes. 
And you heard about it at the time, about the heart attack and the, his passing? Yeah, I actually, you know, it's funny. I was at school and my mother called and, and then they took me out of my class and said, you're for the job. And you want to know something? I can actually never even remember meeting the person mm. in, in, in person. He would call every New Year's Eve to say Happy New Year. And I would hear this voice. And, you know, it really didn't really mean much to me. Sure. Now, my stepfather was my real father. And complete opposite of the one who inseminated my mother. <coughs> However... You know, I think because of of traditions, we went to the funeral, which was in which was in a uh, uh, Jackson, Michigan, hmm. and it was the first time I ever saw him was uh, laying down hmm. in this plywood hmm. coffin, hmm. no money, and uh, meant nothing. I mean, not not a quarter of a tear did I care. Um, and I really didn't know as much about the person as I did later, but I knew enough. And then I, my mother gave me some of his clothes to wear because <laughs> saved her shopping for clothes. <laughs> That's all gone. Is that coffin a good description of your childhood and family yeah. background? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, did you have any nicknames in your youth? Or did those come about later on? Uh, the nicknames I had were not endearing. The hmm. F word, and I don't mean fuck. Um... So, I, I mean, I got into fights, like, almost every day. Um, if I could just sum up my childhood, the irony of, of this person being a fetish. I was beaten um, almost every day because mm. uh, Italian-American Catholic kids who never went to church, where they would have seen me as the one in the choir, <laughs> the altar boy, thought I was Jewish, so they beat me up every day until one day they found out I wasn't. And I was the greatest person in the world, and I thought something weird about this way of thinking. So, um, but my favorite probable nickname was one that was given to me by kids, hmm. little kids, call me Fancy Pants. Hmm. <laughs> Fancy Pants. Yeah. How old were you when you got that nickname? Older, like in my forties. <laughs> <laughs> Neighbors, <laughs> you know. Um, Obviously, they were not traditional, um, you know, Walmart trousers. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh, well, there might have been these trousers. I was gonna <laughs> say, can you tell us about what you're wearing today? Um. Yeah, what am I wearing? I'm wearing, um, you know what I'm actually wearing? I'm wearing, uh, of course, these pants, and they have a little sexy slit in it. And actually, the fishnets underneath, 
Mm. I got in Patricia Field in like 1994, 95. Wow. Talk about preservation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fish nets. I know. I, 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 do, I am, I, I handle my clothes carefully. <laughs> that doesn't mean they don't disappear after a while, but, and one day these will, but I'm just gonna let them fall off rather than do anything else. What's a moment you're proud of? Going past Proud of. That's gee. I'm proud to to uh be be in the in the movement. Um uh, I'm proud to have my history of <coughs> probably the most I'm proud of is my contribution to fighting bigotry, racism, um, which, um, you know, I started in Vietnam. Um, that's really where I became an anti-racist person, was in the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, to the point where, <laughs> I, when I was young, I almost, didn't trust a lot of white people I didn't know mm. because I knew all about the backstabbing and, you know, they talked behind people's backs, something I didn't do. And uh, you see a world that, uh, that people who are the victims of racism don't always see, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I was in the war, I came home. When the first thing, one of the first things I did um, after I got out of the service in September 71 was um, actually march with, uh, actually it was Jewish war veterans, Black Panthers, hmm. Hmm. Workers World, and, and we marched on, oh, what was that? Oh, Youth Against War and Fascism. And we, you know, we marched, we marched against a Nazi Ku Klux Klan rally in Trenton, New Jersey wow. on Halloween Eve, wow. 1971. And I got arrested. Right after for, you got back. Well, um, this fascist walked by and talked about us burning in the ovens mm. Mm. or being gassed in the showers. Mm. And that particular fascist had a uh, cast on. And uh, I said something like, yeah, well, before you're through, you're going to need a lot more than uh, a cast. Mm. You, and then I said, you fucking fascist. And like a half a dozen cops jumped all over me. And I was arrested for saying the word fuck. Hmm. And uh, I went to the ACLU, you know, they, they had a trial date. And I went to the ACLU. I was actually a member of the ACLU then. Right. Then, <laughs> and I went to the ACLU in, in uh, Newark, uh, you know, to defend me against yeah. this uh, public obscenity charge. Hmm. And uh, they refused to 
mm. take my case because they said it's not a free speech issue. It's an issue of sanity. And I took my ACLU card in front of them and I said, done with you. Wow. And then I got another lawyer who um, defended me and the judge, I never forget, the judge, the judge said, um, I can understand, you know, that you were, you know, the, the volatile emotion of the moment, but that still the obscenity can't be condoned. And I remember, you know, I, I was so honest and so um, um, oh, what's the word? Um, I was going to say improvised, spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And I said, um, let's see, there's these people talking about the annihilation of entire races of people. Right. But that's not dramatic. That's not volatile. Right. My saying, one obscenity is. And he said, $100 fine. And I mean, $100 fine, 1971. Right. Wow. It's like 500 Right. You know? Yeah, that's my story of uh, getting out of the service and resigning from the American Civil Liberties Union. Wow. <laughs> what were you seeing in Vietnam that you credit with making you an anti-racist person? Pardon? What were you seeing in Vietnam that you credit with making you an anti-racist person? You said... Genocide. Hmm. I saw... I, I worked, listen, I wasn't James Bond or, you know, some Angelina Jolie, you know, spy. Um, I was a courier for uh, military intelligence, which in my branch of the military was called OSI, Office mm -hmm. of Special Investigations. And you saw a, a, a war in a world that no one else much knew, especially here. And, and just to say that in Vietnam, there were more than one reality. There were people in the bush. There were right. people in Saigon. There were people who were like on vacation in the military, owned restaurants or houses, brothels, right. you know. Um, so there were many different realities. Mine was kind of like multiple realities, you know. Um, I could be in Saigon, which is now, of course, Ho Chi Minh City, or... You know, I could be currying up to Benoit or Fubai or all these places that, uh, you know, um, either flew into or, you know, got around in. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I, you know, after I came back, I, the job I really wanted was um, um, driving a taxi because... Uh, I had belonged to an organization at the end of my time in the military, which was about unionizing the military, called mm. the American, uh, American Servicemen's Union. And so what I wanted to do was organize. Um, actually, I was married, and um, my wife was actually at one point a, a Black Panther. Mm. Um, and I wanted to fight. I wanted to fight bigotry, I wanted to fight homophobia, I wanted to fight racism, sexism, misogyny, I wanted to fight all of it, and I still do, and I still will. And um, so that's how I got a job driving a taxi, which led to um, 
meeting all kinds of people that sort of awakened certain senses inside me and um, <laughs> meeting, you know, some of the fabulous uh, street women that I became one of. Right. Uh, later on, um, I wasn't doing sex work then, but uh, started going, I, I actually started working my taxi outside um, infamous clubs. Right. That were, there was no, no trans, you never really heard transgender then. Even I mean, it, was, it was legitimate, but mostly the word was drag queens. Mm -hmm. And when I say drag queens, I'm not talking about uh, someone who performs once a month, like Imperial Court, you know, or people have like their own hairdresser and costume designer. They do actually have yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We had Woolworths. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's like Dorian Corey, one of the greatest drag queens of all time, said, yes, in, in relating to those who have money, because class courses everything. Right. And, and, and Dorian Corey said, yeah, we know those who can only acquire they bought the most beautiful gowns. They bought the most beautiful wings. They had, and then there was us. They were the acquirers. We <laughs> were the creators. Mm. Never forget that line. Mm. As she would often say, if you shoot an arrow and it goes real far, hooray for you. And... Um, so I started working the Gilded Grape, the Gigi Knickerbocker, the Mint Lounge, the infamous 220 Club, all of which you started to know because people would get in your cab. You know, I got to remember, I'm in my early 20s. Right. And they would take me to these places. Then it would be like, oh, yeah, this is cool. I think I'll hang out here and get rides. Yeah. And before that, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, God, sex was less like gotta understand you know you're in your early mid-20s yeah it's the 70s driving a taxi at night pre-plague yeah and um and then finally at the 220 club um which was uh right across from where the film forum is now 220 mm -hmm. west house building is still there mm -hmm. i've actually got pictures of it um, amazingly, because, and um, the irony, of course, is, as I pointed out to uh, Yasmin, is that uh, when Paris is Burning opened in New York, yeah. it opened in the film forum, literally right across from where the 220 was. Mm. Um, the irony is the 220 kind of closed right around the late 80s. Right. You know, um, that I have the fondest memories ever, and some of the fondest people ever, many of whom are in Leslie Feinberg's books. Right. Um, you know, I met there, and who worked there too, you know. And we had, I mean, we had all kinds, you know, you got to understand, man. See, I try to tell some people that. Um, I identified as a drag queen forever. You know, this idea that 
somehow if you're a drag queen you're someone that like you know puts on some makeup and lip syncs once this is first of all i can tell you drag queens who identify as drag queens they wear female clothes day in day out 24 7 365 days a year for 30 years right and i don't want to hear from somebody how it's derogatory i don't want to hear that because it was the trans women of color at Stonewall that led that rebellion. Why would I want to now assign this as something derogatory when I know there's people who gave their lives to defend that? Yeah. That naming of drag right. queens. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, and Le Leslie Feinberg always felt that way, mm. if you read Le Leslie's work. Um, and uh, there's a great thing about bathroom access with drag queens. And, and, um, but we had lots of challenges. We had people come in that club. And I mean, I can tell you, there's just another thing. If you, if you, if you had some of these, um, why is it? Although you didn't hear it that much. You actually held, heard it later, in later generations. Um... And I, I mean, one time I remember I heard, I, I remember one person said, a drag queen is not a woman. And the, somebody said that to me in, I think it was the late 90s, mm. you know, maybe the early 2000s. Right. And I said, you know what? I'm just reporting history for you. I'm giving you a message that if you went into the 220 Club yeah. and told, I'm not going to mention names. Sure. I'll, I'll, our first names. Stormy, Jackie, Monique, Mercedes. Told them they weren't a woman. Yeah. You're going to the emergency room in St. Vincent's. <laughs> You're not going to be yeah. smacked. Yeah. And, 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 and in fact, I could say this, you could even, you know, be in danger of your life. Mm. You know, mm. and don't be like one of these, you know, uh, asterisk ones. Remember the ones with the asterisk next to the T? Mm. Oh, I've talked to some of them, and I think, my God, they'd be beaten. Mm. They'd be. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not saying I want them to be. Yeah. I'm just saying you can't be talking like that to people. Yeah. To sit and just debate something when people have lived their entire lives like that. Mm. You know, we were outlaws. Yeah. Oh, listen, I, let me tell you something. I was in the trans community in 1974. Yeah. I never put on a dress till 1989. Mm. And you know what? I wasn't the only one. So I mean, I was a lover of of trans women, drag queens, for fifteen years. While I was married, after I was married, mm. um, and um, sometimes certain things start to feel different, and you start doing pain really start loving like I feel naked unless my nails aren't painted I mm. just am and and uh, you know I, I mean I just couldn't stop once I started um, and and that was late 80s like 90 um, and I remember, I, and, and you know, I remember saying, my God, I'm in my late 30s, you know, I'm almost 40. Why did I wait so long? Well, how the fuck did I know? 
Yeah. Right? And now, of course, I look back and I see people 75 right. doing it. I think, well, shit. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't complain so much about my when I awakened, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, I mean, we had... We had, you know, you know, you know what the thing is, the media. When there's a gay bashing or a trans bashing, they right. actually get a lot of publicity. Right. But when you fight back, when you bash back the bashers, yeah, it's nowhere, because to report that is to violate the cliche-ridden, stereotypified image of what we are. Mm. So I'll give you one story. Yeah. It was a Tuesday night at the 220. Mm. I'm not going to give full names. Blonde Frankie worked the store door downstairs. He walked up the stairs to the second floor. That's where the 220 was. Mm. And um, you kind of like, you worked the door. You basically authorized someone to either not, not come in or come in. Yeah. And that Tuesday night, they came over from Hells Angels headquarters, which is still on 3rd Street between 1st and 2nd. And they got in. Blonde Frankie shouldn't have let them in. I'm not going to tell you what happened to Blonde Frankie for doing that. Um, I mean, he's okay. But his employment was discontinued. <laughs> when they got upstairs... They proceeded to target, to literally beat the crap out of every drag queen in the club. The Hells Angels. The Hells Angels. And, I mean, there was fights. It wasn't like people just stood there and took it. But, and uh, they, they got out. I always felt bad because I only had one night off a week. And it was Tuesday. So I found out about it the next day. I will tell you this, I don't know who did it, <clears throat> I don't know, but I will say that a three-car caravan mm. the next night went to Hells Angels headquarters, 339 East 3rd Street, north side of the street in the middle of the block, knocked on the door, whoever it was opened the door and they were told, you come to our club again, and we're coming back, mm. and we're going to burn this building to the fucking ground. Mm. They never came back. The media never tells that story. Mm. Because it's the limp wrist image that they want to sustain. I, I, by the way, I've seen this a million times. I've seen it in Sheridan Square. I've seen, I've seen cis bigots get their asses fucking kicked. Mm. Sliced and diced. Ain't nothing about that. Because, you know, you might, you might start breaking the mold. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I, I actually worked at the 220 for uh, quite a bit of period of time. And... Uh, what happened was, um, you know where the basketball courts are? Yeah. So, uh, me and Pedro, there's a McDonald's there. I've been there quite a while. And suddenly we saw a ruckus across the hall. 
and there was um, uh, we looked out and there were these white races beating black baseball play uh, mm. basketball players with stickball bats mm. and <laughs> me and the DJ in, in the 220 ran over and we were outnumbered but instead of but the funny thing is so now it was not six against one that was six against three that was already like yeah too much evening out and um, but the word got back and um, got back to 220 got back to the 220 and you know my boss who's no longer here I loved I love Sally that was Sally's club see mm -hmm. I was in the house of Sally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, Sally was trying to convince me to say, you know, oh, I'll just call the police next time. But I was like, fuck them and all that. But I, I still had a relationship with the 220 after that, but I actually didn't really work every night. I'd fill in, you know, when somebody didn't show up, but I wasn't a regular worker there anymore. But that's okay. What were you doing for work when you were there? I worked either the door mm. or I waited tables most of the time. Um, serve drinks, you know. Um, I loved, you know what, even to this day, it was probably my favorite job. Wow. I mean, we were shot at, people shoot through the front door. Wow. You know, I mean, it, you know, it's not like it, it, it is now. You know, I mean, look, even now, I go outside, I think maybe I'm never coming home again. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm going to be killed. And, um, I just wanted to say this as a disabled transgender person, a topic that's barely discussed. Yeah. Um, when the 1997 kind of rolled around um, and I started becoming compromised physically, mm. that was the worst thing. The worst thing about it was not specifically being in the wheelchair most of the time or on crutches. It was, I don't really have much of an ability to defend myself. Mm -hmm. Because before that, I'm telling you, I, I tell you, I have it how now in my purse. I have a big purse in my closet that I used to carry and inside I used to have a, an axe. Yeah. I only... Never actually had to use it. Displaying it was impressionable. <laughs> but I mean, there were other ways we used, like the wig. Yeah. You have a wig, and you used to buy the straight edge razor blades. Wow. And stick it in the webbing. Wow. Right? Yeah. By the way, and you had to be careful how you took off your own wig. You had to take it by yeah. the by what what you call the lace right. underneath and roll it back. Because you could get a bigot. I've seen it. You fucking freak. My hand. Uh, Hundred pennies in a sock. Mm. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of them like that. And wow. don't forget the heels that you could use. Oh, God. Are you kidding? I mean, you know, you take the street queens... Working class street queens. Mm. Oh, yo, you, you, you know you have to fight. Mm. You went outside your door, taxi, coin, and you then went have no cell phones. Mm. 
So you had plenty of coin for phone calls, yeah. you know. So, you know, it really was a different world. Um, and um, I have no regrets about living it. The irony now is that because my upper body now has been compromised, mm. I'm even, I even have less ability to defend myself than when I first got in the wheelchair, and I now sort of modified my appearance. By the way, that doesn't mean that I was putting suits on. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I, 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 just to say my appearance was more gender nonconforming, even though people use the same pronoun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, because, you know... Um, I, I just didn't want to be killed. And I can cry sometimes that I did that. You know, it makes me feel bad that I did. Because that's when you start to enter the jail cell, the size of your body. And I kind of lived in that limbo from 98, maybe till after my father died in 06, 08, 10, yeah, around there. Don't get me wrong, um, I was still doing activities, but um, I was, there was even, even trans women, I'm, I'm just saying in the Hudson Valley I knew, and I lived upstate, and I kind of lived... Um, not like a hermit. That that's that's completely wrong. But I just sort of lived my my life. I I didn't contribute much to a movement. Or I mean, I did some stuff. Don't get me wrong. Now, in fact, a lot of in fact, I'm 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 going by the standards of what I'm doing now, which is like every day. Yeah. But for most people, I was probably doing too much. Mm. You know, you know, yeah. Yeah. and and then now and now my feeling is, live free or die, mm. and and whenever I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna die free. This is free. Yeah, I'm not gonna die in jail. Yeah. So, and that I can't tell you, that even though, I know there's that risk. Oh, to feel as free as this. Yeah, you can't put a price on that. So in that sense, I've probably never been happier in my life. Mm. Then and go ahead. And and never been more happier to contribute um, to all the the things that are happening now. Um, our revolution, which is uh, as one cis person recognized. Mm at uh, that Black Lives Matter conference in Cleveland last year, yeah. uh, where the older antiquated forces are being overturned in the anti-police brutality movement, anti-racist movement. And, um, you know, most people don't know that the leadership of Black Lives Matter is is queer women of color and trans women of color. Yeah. 
Most people don't even know that. And, um, gee, I just feel so, like, I, I, you know what it is? I can't, I can't resolve every social contradiction in the world. But little tiny bits of difference mm. I feel I can make. Mm. And that makes me free. I don't care what the fuck people say or think. Just don't try to kill me. Mm. Anything else? Roll it off my fucking back. And I think that that's <coughs> some of the greatest challenge. And believe me, I understand it. It's I don't think it's easy to get to this point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in in fact, there was a word that we used earlier today, and that was we're fighting ourselves. It was another. Yeah. Wasn't it? Where we are are embattled with ourselves. Right. We fight inside. There's two of us. Yeah. But one is not real. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. the other one is. And Yeah, you meant the jail of your body. Yes. Yeah. You, that's exactly what you are. And, and when I reflect on way in the past that you could live personally mm. a fraudulent life. And, and, and when I look back on it, it, it was just like, um, I stopped being in drag mm. when I became a drag queen. Mm. I was in drag before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and I think there's a lot of people who really, you know, like do feel that way. And, um, but I was lucky to be, to be guided by, you know, by people like Leslie Feinberg or even Amani Henry and, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, all the authors that we even mentioned, um, some of whom I know better than others. And I like to think that I'm, I always want to learn and I always want our, our community to know our history. And... Uh, I'm in a closed trans femme group, um, which the last one is Monday. I'm actually not going to it because it's May Day and I'm going to Union Square because yeah. I'm a worker and I celebrate yeah. workers' holidays. Trans people are workers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, it was this white trans woman who I'm... In your group. Oh, don't like her at all ignorant, um, is aware of the white privilege and doesn't mind it. Mm -hmm. See, we have, a lot of us, we have white privilege, but we don't want it. We don't like it, you know. Yeah. And we try our best to not take advantage of uh, white privilege. In other words, if I'm standing at the corner of 27th Street and 7th Avenue, mm -hmm. And I'm looking for a taxi, and on the corner of 28th Street and 7th Avenue is an African-American couple of people hailing a taxi. And I see an empty taxi come down 7th Avenue. They hail the taxi, and the taxi passes them to pick me up, 
I'll never get in that fucking cab. And I'll curse the cab driver out. That's what you can do. Now, I might still benefit from white uh, supremacy because maybe they're around the corner. And I didn't see them. So involuntarily, that's how pervasive racism is. Mm. You know, but, um, you know, if anything, I tried to tell this person, you should read about Stonewall. I come from a little town that's got nothing to do with me. Mm. It's got nothing to do with you, really. Mm. You're sitting here in the center, which would not exist without Stonewall, in a group. You're in a dress talking in this group, which would not exist because of Stonewall, but you have nothing to do with it. You know what I wanted to do. I mean, obviously I can't. But, oh, oh, my goodness. And that you know what? The fight against racism and bigotry is applicable in every community, including this one. Yeah. And maybe I try to fight it harder in my community than anywhere else, mm. you know. And that's why I always will illustrate the history of the Stonewall Rebellion. Mm. And what got me about this person was kind of like even putting down, you know. And I thought, you haven't been on one picket line. You haven't been on one march. You haven't carried one fucking sign. Yeah. But you like the benefits of us doing it, don't you? Mm. I wanted to say, I ain't going to be your bitch. Mm. Yeah. So, but that is rare. Even, even white racist trans women that I know of don't actually denigrate Stonewall itself. Yeah. yeah. Because maybe they're not that stupid. Mm. You know. But talk about disheartening. Mm. You know. Anyway. Yeah, we're coming trans. Where are we at right now? We've got about four minutes left. Our memory on the recorder was short. Okay. But we can I wanna I mean that metaphor of the the taxi drive the taxi and racism I feel like is so um, apt to your story because you've seen that from so many sides from both sides right yes um, yeah I guess I just wanted to open at the end and maybe Andy if you have a question too but um, for any words that you have about that or about how the the movements that you're a part of now the communities that you have now are dealing with or how they're representing trans folks, how trans folks are? Well, let me just say this. Leslie Feinberg, who I met in 1972 in Workers' World Party. Wow. Right? And I will say this. This is a socialist, revolutionary, communist party. That's what it is. Leslie died that way. Leslie was always that way and will want to be remembered that way. I spoke at her memorial. And I will say this, that um, the party I'm in, and I'm not trying to promote my party, I'm just reporting history, was really the first party 
in the early 70s yeah. to support trans rights when there were other p political organizations that expelled people mm. for being gay, let alone trans. Mm. I, I'm not even going to uh, mention which ones they are. Yeah. Um, and some people in our grouping here know which ones I'm talking about. And, and the ones here who do know, they're not, they've never been in those organizations right. either. Um, but, um, and I, I am so proud to, 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 to be that. And, and, and to, to, and, and, and I, I, I almost feel bad putting it this way, but it's sad that so many other progressive organizations that were not specifically trans-oriented were so late in that. Yeah. You know? Uh, compared to, you know, uh, to, to my, my organization or others like it, um, was just astounding. And I think a lot of people um, gravitated to it simply because it was really bucking the tide, you know. And centering workers. Yeah. We're, and, and talking about unifying all people. You know, and, and uh, for instance, I'll, I'll tell you this right now. Um, the secretary of my party is trans people mm -hmm. in the, on the secretariat. Mm -hmm. Young! Like 21, 22. Fuck this ageist shit. Yeah. And old. Yeah. Right? And you know what? I, I, I could be off, but I'm, I'm, it seems like every time we have a conference... We will like be 25, 30%. Mm. I mean, it's just, I can't tell you how it, I, it sounds like I'm embellishing my own life, but I'm not. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, just to say that, if I can close this way, yeah. a cis ally, revolutionary fighter from Amir Abul Jamal, yeah. and, you know, prisoner rebellions, went to that conference in Cleveland and on the question of trans leadership, right, in the movement, said to other cis people, listen, you better wake up because this is a revolution in the revolution. And that was at the Black Lives Matter conference in Cleveland. And it was said by a cis ally. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> The kind, of, the kind of cis ally that if any of us were in trouble in the street yeah. would come to save our fucking ass before that fucking white trans woman in my fucking group would ever. Mm. We should think about that. Too. Yeah. You know? We, we should not, you know... I remember somebody wrote something about the cis cesspool and I thought, you know, I'm not going to write off <laughs> all... How, what percentage of humanity am I writing off? Right. You know, I'm not going to be that nationalist. I think we, we all have nationalist streaks. Yeah. I mean, I was in a place with Christian not too long ago, and Christian yeah. said, it's a little too cis for me. Yeah. And, I, you know, we know what that, that feeling is. Yeah. But you know what? I'll tell you this. Around real cis allies, I mean ones that carry guns to protect me, yeah. to walk me home, I don't feel that way at all. I, I, in fact, I feel like I'm with my people. Yeah. You know, it's just a technicality about expression. Yeah. You know. We'll leave it there for now with the okay. words of revolution and liberation.
Yeah. Well, I'm interviewing next time. <laughs> Absolutely. I was actually... I didn't want to say nothing. Now we're finished. I'll say it. I, do you want me I to was looking off? forward to interviewing instead of being 